1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl
0: Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast. Stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. James Hahn, Matson, welcome to Better Reading.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: All the way from North Dakota.
2: Yeah, Yeah. Tundra.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, for the listeners that know me, they know that I love the US. I spent a lot of time in San Francisco. We used to um, pre-COVID and I do a lot of work from there. So uh, maybe one day we'll get to meet up in person. Now, James is a writer and editor who was born in South Korea and raised in North Dakota. He has taught at universities, including the University of Iowa, University of Cape Town and Berkeley. He is also the fiction editor of Hyphen Magazine. His first book is called The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves, and he has now published his second novel, Reprieve, which blends psychological horror with social commentary. It's got to be a very, very frightening book. I mean, wow. (laughs) Wow. It had me... um, Getting up a couple of times and checking the lock (laughs) on the front door. But that's always a good sign of a horror novel. (laughs) Okay. Now, wow, there's so much in this. This is packed. It's packed full of fiction. It's packed full of culture. There were so many uh, concepts in there that I could uh, relate to, if you like. Um, I, for those who listen, know this, but I'm Lebanese-Australian. So um, my parents immigrated to Australia in the 50s and I grew up as an outsider, if you like, and I saw that through your book as well. So, talk to me firstly about the novel, and then I want to I want to go back and see how you came to writing.
2: Sure, uh, the novel is called Reprieve. As you As you said, it is about a murder that takes place at a full contact haunted uh, attraction in the middle of the country in Lincoln, Nebraska. And the book traces the life paths of the people who were present on the day of the killing. And that's kind of, uh, you know, the majority of the book. There's um, trial transcripts and individual narratives. Uh, And um, evidence descriptions also involved uh, splice throughout the the book. Uh, But mostly it's narrative based on how these characters came to be at this particular haunted attraction at this particular time. Thematically, I would say it's about a lot of things, uh, mainly about racial fetishism, I would say, uh, but also about, you know, capitalism, hate politics and uh, our obsession with with fear as entertainment. So yeah. Well and
0: and, and racism and fear of the unknown.
2: Yeah. The racial fetishism part, you know, it definitely like feeds into the explicit racism that happens in the book, the explicit and and implicit racism Mm. that happens
0: Mm.
2: throughout the book.
0: So um, as I said, I'm a Lebanese Australian and I experienced a lot of racism growing up. Mm. And then that calmed down for quite a while. I think, as Australia became more of a multicultural country and things really changed for me and the way people interacted with me for a long time. But when 9-11 happened, (laughs) um, it started all over again. You know, Uh I was at dinners and people would ask me why my people killed Americans, that's what, right. you know, here I am, a Lebanese-Australian in Sydney being asked a question. <laughs> it was just, like, completely out there. And then again, that disappeared, that calmed down, and the racism towards Arabs in this country calmed down. And then Trump happened,
1: and yeah. it started
0: all over again. And I know that there's that there's an association and a reference to that, I guess, in your book, but I feel that sometimes people like Donald Trump give permission. Yeah, for hatred, you know, and that happened. And I told this story very recently where I was with my elderly mother who's 83, and um, I was putting her in a car in an inner city suburb of Sydney. And this is maybe a year into the Trump presidency. And this is the domino effect of ha- hatred can have. Um, and here I am in Sydney, Australia, and a woman from across the road called out to us and said, Go back to your country. Hmm. And I thought, Here yeah. we go again.
2: Right. I think the Trump administration emboldened people to be overt about their racism way gave more. Gave them than, permission. Yeah, it gave them permission. It wasn't that all like all of this racism just kind of happened. You know, it was always there. But I think because he was in such a position of power and he was pretty explicitly racist himself, it gave it, it emboldened these people to. Be race, I mean, be uh, outwardly racist.
0: Mm. Okay, so tell me your journey. So you, you were born in South Korea. What was your journey to the U.S.? How did you get to North Dakota?
2: I was adopted when I was three, so uh, my parents are white. So we we actually lived in uh, central Wisconsin until I was ten, and then we moved to North Dakota, and that's where I went to high school. So I just say that's where I'm from. Mm. Yeah, and
0: talk definitely. to me about your experiences of being in a in a largely white high school. Um,
2: it was tough. It was uh, you know i I got bullied and teased quite a bit. I also have two younger um, Korean adopted sisters as well, and you know they faced it too. I mean, kids can be really cruel. Kids yeah. can say things that that often adults will tamp down. And so, you know, every day was a bit torturous, you know, going, especially when I got into middle school, you know, and, and being different and trying to figure out who your tribe was, was very important and being different. Wasn't, wasn't something that you wanted to be. And I couldn't help it because of my appearance. Um, So it was difficult. Yeah, it was, it was difficult for me to be, you know, a non-white person in a sea of white.
0: Mm. Uh, And so talk to me about writing. So was it that you from a very early age thought that you might be a writer? When did that kind of that thought start? uh, You started thinking about that? Were you little?
2: No, I, I always loved to read. My mom got me hooked on reading fiction at an early age, and I always loved reading fiction, mostly like fantasy novels. But I didn't Seriously, consider becoming a writer till my early twenties. Till after college, uh, I got a business degree, so I wasn't wow. really. I mean, <laughs> no. I went to college <laughs> not for not for English literature. Let anything. me stop uh,
0: you wow. there, James. I have spoken to hundreds of writers about their background. <laughs> and how they came to be yeah. and uh, this is the first business degree guy I've spoken <laughs> to person that's come from a business degree to creative writing so you're the yeah. first congratulations there oh well
2: thank you <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I mean I always love to read and I always love to read fiction I just didn't really consider it a life path until I left college. I moved actually to the Bay Area, to San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I worked nights at this hotel in North Berkeley. All I did, there was nothing to do there but read. So I just read a bunch of horror novels, basically. I worked there from 7 to 11, three days a week. I just read horror novels. And I remember one time I was reading this novel and and I thought, I could probably write this a little better. (laughs) Like, I think I could do it a little better. And so I asked my boss at the time of my day job if I could stay after work and write because I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a laptop of my own. And I asked her if I could just use the computers to write. And she said yes. And so on the days that I wasn't working at the hotel, I would just write. And I came up with this novel within like, you know, four months or so. It was a really bad novel but it was like something that told me that I could do it you know I could I could well you know I say that's
0: bad novels of practice
2: yeah and I think every writer has bad novel I mean I think every novelist who publishes has early novels who are that are bad
0: yeah 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 it's part of growing and learning what did you think you wanted to do with your business degree (laughs)
2: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I I waffled between so many majors. And finally, I was just like, I need to pick something practical because I need to live. So I, I just got a business degree. I didn't love it. I didn't. I thought the classes were boring. And but it was something that I just I was trying to think practically. Uh, and, you know, which was a, a mistake on my part, because I'm just not a practical thinker in that way anyway. So I didn't do anything with it.
0: No, I guess it comes in handy when you're running your own affairs.
2: Yeah. I mean, that was so long <laughs> ago. I, I don't feel that organized financially, to be honest. <laughs> okay. um,
0: so you then thought that, well, I mean, you were actually doing it. Did you think you would ever be published? And how did you approach it? How did you approach being published?
2: That was my goal. My goal was to try to be a writer um, and try to be, you know, a full-time writer. I didn't. I knew that it was a long shot, but it was something that after I wrote that first novel, I was just like, I think this is what I should do. Yeah. So I was living in the Bay Area. I was living in, um, and I was working uh, these jobs that I didn't particularly like. Um, what happened was I actually got kicked out of the house that I was living in in Oakland. Mm. I don't know. I mean, you spent some time in the Bay Area and, you know, they're like if you live in a group house, a lot of times they expect you to be very social and I just wasn't social. I just wanted to be by myself and they didn't like that. They thought it was very rude of me to not like want to talk to them all the time. And so after living there for three years, they just decided that I wasn't fit for the house, (laughs) even though I paid my rent on time all the time, but I just wasn't fit because I wasn't uh, as social as they wanted me to be. Wow. Um, So I left and I moved to Nebraska because I knew one person there and I wanted to get out of the Bay area. It was getting too expensive anyway. And I just, you know, I worked some jobs there and I, and I wrote, and I started taking a few creative writing classes at the university of Nebraska, Lincoln. And I went to this conference, the Nebraska summer writers conference. And I met a writer named Ron Hanson who really took me under his wing and said, like, you, I think you, you have something here. You should, you should do something with this. You should uh, go to graduate school. You should apply to graduate school. I'd never thought that, you know, I would go to graduate school or anything, but he, he was just like, yeah, this is this is something you should do. So I applied to graduate schools. I applied to like, I think 10 of them. Um, and I got into a few and I ended up going to the Iowa writers workshop. And from there, you know, things just started falling into place as far as like my writing life. I mean, it wasn't like I was published right after I I graduated. It took me a while, but you know, I was in the world. I was around other writers. I was teaching writing. So I felt like it could happen at some point.
0: I, I think that's really important, actually, because, you know, a lot of people write, but to actually get to being published, it does require social connections and connections, doesn't it? You know, you don't, it's not a solitary kind of pursuit, even though the occupation is a solitary pursuit.
2: It definitely helps to like know a few people who've gone through it and they can, you know, help you mm. through the process of like what it's
0: like. Um, it's tough, though. It is. Oh, it, it's gosh, it's tough. really yeah. tough. I often say, and I've said this many, many times on this um, podcast, is it is the most difficult occupation. I mean, I'm not a writer, but I sp- speak to people, and a lot of them, um, you know, have suffer so much rejection so they spend you know years or months in a room writing and then they finally have something that they think is is worth other people reading and then they've got the the roadblock of an agent and they've got the roadblock of the publisher and then once they finally get published and put it out there everyone has an opinion i'm like why would you do that to yourself i
2: know i know
0: (laughs) (laughs) um speaking of opinions your opinions have been good the reviews are fantastic on this book
2: Well, thank you. Yeah, they've been, I've been pleased with how um, the early um, anticipation reviews have been.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It's how it
2: goes from now on because today's publication day.
0: Yeah. I I guess I'm trying to, uh, the question I want to ask is how you bring these characters together and why is it that you set it? It's in a way about human nature and behavior, isn't it? And Uh yeah. In a sense, I thought, wow, everyone's crazy, right? <laughs> so talk to me about how these characters came about.
2: I, I wanted to write about racial fetishism. I wanted to write, like I had an idea in my head. I didn't have a character. I didn't have a setting or anything. I had an idea that I wanted to write about, and that idea was racial fetishism. And the um, where racial fetishism is on pretty brazen display is in Thailand, And so I started writing this books only in Thailand. I only had Thai characters Um, and I went to Thailand, you know, I did research and and I was just going to set it, set it there. However, as I was doing research for this book and as I was writing on this Thai book, I also at one point became obsessed with these full contact haunted attractions that are all over the States. I had no idea that they even existed, but once once I found out that they existed, I was just like, I want to write about this. I want to write about a full contact haunted attraction. Um, So I had two sort of separate novels going on. I had this novel that takes place in Thailand and then this novel about this haunted attraction that was kind of more horror but at one point, I realized that it was all one novel. I just had to do the interweaving of the stories uh because you know the horror novel and the racial fetishism novel like thematically they tied in together so well. so getting i mean all the characters and all of that stuff uh situated within the plot, you know that that took some time, but I knew because the thematic overlaps were there that Uh, that it would work and that that's how I wanted it to be. So then I had, you know, I had uh, JD um, who was already in the book from the beginning. He was a Thai student. And then from the uh, Full Contact haunt, I had Leonard. that, That story, I had Leonard. So I had those two characters already. Kendra came a lot later. Kendra's story came much later. She was in an earlier draft as a minor character, and I really loved her character, so I made her a major character. And so those are sort of the origin stories of those three characters. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
0: Thinking about humans and human behaviour, because it is a social commentary, do you think I sometimes, or well, when I read a book like this, I wonder where these people are and who are they and how how did they get there? Like, how did we get to behaviours like that?
2: Yeah. How did they all get to behaviours like that? And I how mean, did you
0: as a writer get them to behave that way?
2: They're all victims of some sort of oppressive, large-scale oppressive forces even Leonard, who is, you know, this white guy from from middle America, he starts off the novel like falling in love with this woman who he thinks is out of his reach and then befriends this guy, uh, John Forrester, who is, the, who is the proprietor of the Quigley House, which is the full-contact haunt. And John kind of brings out this nastiness in him that was kind of dormant for a while. Um, so he is... I wouldn't say he's a victim of John Forrester, but John Forrester is definitely influential in his in the uh, choices that he made, the bad choices that he's made throughout the book. And then, you know, Kendra and JD were victims of structural racism and and fetishism and like imperialism and and whiteness, you know, Um, and all of those things go into their stories not necessarily explicitly all the time, but like in every
0: interaction. It's it's kind of frightening, isn't it? Well, it is frightening because it's a horror genre, but even frightening how these people are who they are, I think. Did you always think it was going to be a horror novel that has a social commentary? Did, is that what you were thinking? Or is that really the label that people like say your publisher put on it afterwards?
2: Yeah, they call it social horror. I think it's more of a character study than anything. I think the yeah. horror is a lot. I, don't, I read a lot of horror and my my book is not. I don't think my book is scary. <laughs> um, it has some horror elements to it, obviously, because of the full contact haunt. And some people who don't read horror are going to find it scary, you know, but people real aficionados of horror are not going to find this scary at all because it's not this unrelenting gore fest. It's not like there's not a creep on every page. No, absolutely
0: not. I, yeah. I think for me, the horror of it was the horror of behavior.
2: Yeah. Like what goes on outside of the haunt is sometimes more horrific than what goes on inside it.
0: Yeah. You know? When, when you put a book out there like this, because it really is, I think, really important in its subject matter. And as I said, I think we, we alluded to the fact that it's very timely. Do you want readers to take away messages? I guess it's not, is it your intent when you're writing it? Or is it your intent when you put it out there that you think, well, I hope people learn something from this?
2: No, I don't. I want people to have conversations about the themes that yeah. emerge. I don't necessarily want to be... You know, didactic. I don't want to be like this. Is what I think you should think about. This is what I think. How I think you should think after you read this book. But yeah, I would love people to have conversations about the topics that that present
0: themselves. Did you um? Uh, did you ever read this Donna Tartt's secret history? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Did. Yeah. It's kind of a little bit reminiscent of that, isn't it?
2: Oh, that's great. That's a nice comparison. I I love that book. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I love that book too. But I love that book in that I hated everybody in that book.
2: Yeah. (laughs) No, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you
0: get that? Yeah. And
2: I'm finding that a lot of uh, people actually don't like lot the characters in my novel.
0: That's right. Um, but it's still, I always thought the secret to that book was how despicable everybody was, but ha- about how readable it was and how compelling yeah. it was. It was such a great story. And I think there's a little bit of that in your book, that the story overrides everything else.
2: Well, thank you. That's nice to hear.
0: So this is your second fiction book. Uh-huh. Is that right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And you're yeah. writing again?
2: yep I'm writing another book
0: and how do you approach that
2: I mean my next book is completely different it's way more personal um it's 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 a completely different topic I, I mean I don't know if I would call it horror even though there are some pretty dark elements to it It's in its infancy you know there's a lot of stuff that I still have mm. I mean it's going to take a while for me to be able to show it but it's, it's very different than Reprieve.
0: And talk to me just about the process of writing. So you're a full-time author?
2: I am right now, yes.
0: In terms of approaching the discipline of work if you like, the practicality of it. Is it something that you, you know, are you a nine to five or are you somebody that, you know, oh, sets a word word target? How do you approach nine, five, writing? That's
2: <laughs> yeah. I, that's difficult. I mean, like, um, I think when I'm revising I can write that much, but I'm when I'm inventing and like writing, you know, starting a new book. Usually, you know, my best hours are from 10 to 1, so 10 in the morning to 1 p.m. After that, you know, I try to do some sort of exercise and, you know, I can't really function much after four creatively. I mean, I can do other things like emails and, and, um, you know, whatever other things that I need to do after four, but like trying to write after four for me is almost impossible.
0: I'm yeah. definitely a morning person. I think yeah. mine's probably after two, you know. Um, I think about, well, because as you know, I speak to writers a lot and I think about that in the context of my world. And I, I feel sometimes that it's like having an assignment due every day.
2: Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Do you feel that? I
2: do. I have a word count that I that I make every day. Yeah. And I don't I don't leave until I've made the word count. Sometimes it only takes a couple hours. Sometimes I have to split it up throughout the day, but I make sure I get the word count.
0: Yeah, it's the work of writing, isn't it? I speak to so many writers who, you know, up to their third book or fourth book or fifth book even and quite successfully, and they're still really nervous about calling themselves a writer or all. author. <laughs> you yeah. know, it is one of those occupations that you don't just come to just like that. It's it's a development, right?
2: Well, it sounds like, you know, I think like when people ask you what you do and you say that you're a writer. Yeah people don't particularly take you seriously they're like oh yeah so am i you know i'm a writer too what what else what what do you actually do and then we say well i actually write for a living then it's like what yeah <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah i just want to touch a little bit on diversity in writing it's it's a big topic here in australia at the moment we've all felt um as an industry that it's it's very white and so, therefore, the contents white publishing in Australia, and I, I don't know about the US or the UK, but here in particular, a lot of the decision makers, uh, a lot of the editors, are uh, all white, white Australian. I mean, it's very, very. I could probably, I don't know, count one or two people that aren't that. And so, that's been a conversation here um, for a recent conversation, and and people are starting to speak up about wanting to hear other voices. And I've been thinking about it quite a lot just, you know, because of what we do as well. We want to hear other voices and our readers want to hear other voices. But sometimes what I'm seeing, the interpretation of diversity is just getting a person of colour to write a book. And that's great because we need it. But that's not the essence of it, is it? Right. no. You're talking like
2: tokenism, like they just need one person. Yeah, Yeah,
0: they need to add titles to their list that are diverse. But it's not about that. It's about the entire list, isn't it?
2: I think that's a problem in a lot of places, like the whiteness of of the industry and the whiteness of of writers and how white voices get perpetuated as like the norm. And like you said, maybe they have a token black writer or something. Um, That's a problem, you know. I think the, the direction, it in the US anyway, is heading in the right direction.
0: I agree, uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: I don't know how it is in Australia. We're but, slow
0: off the mark here, yeah.
2: But, yeah, there's a lot of really great novels and books of nonfiction coming out by uh, people of colour here. So and I think we're doing good.
0: Yeah, I think you are. And I think for us we need more books like yours, obviously, because It's not about diversity, it's diversity in its nature. Yeah. Of who wrote it and what you wrote it about. And this is where I think we're not quite at that yet. Okay. When you look at um, who's writing now, and we're talking about modern fiction now, who are some of the authors that you favour or like to read?
2: Well, for this book I read... Because I have a, had a black female character, I read a lot of black female writers. Um, so I read this book by Megan Giddings called Lakewood, which was terrifying. It was like it was like another social horror novel by a black woman. Let's see. Uh, I read, you know, I reread Zizi Packer's book of short stories, which I just loved. I mean, one of my favorite short stories is Brownie's. So I read that. Um, let's see. I read uh, books by Attica Locke. She re- she writes some really great mysteries. I also read uh, a book by A.C. Wise. She's a horror horror slash fantasy writer who does really really remarkable things with her stories. So those those are a few uh, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the people that I've read just for this book in particular. Yeah.
0: Do you try in your reading? to To be as, you'd probably do it automatically and without thinking, but to read as widely diverse as possible.
2: Yes. Yeah. There are definitely, I have my authors that I love, you know, I love Ishiguro.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Don't we? I Will? love Cheng Rai Lee. Yeah. I mean, I love Asian writers, but I, I like to You know, I I, I read everything Mm. Um, and I I do try to uh, diversify my my reading experiences, both via the author and just the subject matter. Mm. Um, Like I I just finished a book uh, called The Upstairs House by Julia Fine. I thought it was like one of the most incredible books I've read this year. And it's all about postpartum depression, but it's a ghost story. It was done really, really well. And it's not something that I've read. I haven't read anything like that before. Mm-hmm. So I, I
0: don't know. Reading. I'm going to find that. I'll look that up. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, I love reading everything. It doesn't really matter what I read. I just tend to read everything because I'm not writing. I'm just reading for pure enjoyment and I'm lucky. <laughs> but sometimes I have to force myself to seek out different types of writing because that's what I'm fed, you know, in a yeah. way. and And that I find sometimes a little bit disappointing but anyway when I do find it then I try and put it out there as well which is I think a movement that needs to be had here in Australia but is is happening which I think is is going to be fantastic
2: yeah that's great
0: so James I'm going to let you go congratulations the book was called so Reprieve yeah happy publication day I think we're going to hear and see a lot more of you
2: thank you very much this was really great Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.